On April 30, 1975, the South Vietnamese capital of Saigon fell to the North Vietnamese Army, effectively ending the Vietnam War. In the days before, U.S. forces evacuated thousands of Americans in South Vietnamese. However, not everyone who wanted to escape could. For the South Vietnam, now under communist control, life for them took on a new and completely challenging world, one that would eventually lead many to escape by any means necessary. On today's episode, I welcome retired Marine Corps fighter pilot, Wizzo, and forward air controller, Lieutenant Colonel Charlie Din, for part one of our two-part series. We talk about his childhood in communist South Vietnam, how his family eventually escaped, what life was like as a Vietnamese refugee in Paris, France, and how going to high school in Los Angeles not knowing a word of English is a great motivator to learn a language. I'm your host, Susan, and this is the Ready Room Podcast. Are you ready, bro? Yeah, man. All right, game on. Here we are, folks. We're in Dallas, Texas. This is a cool one, one I've been looking forward to. Honored to be here with with kind of a Marine Corps legend <laughs> in, rec- in recent history. But uh, sitting here with Mr. Johnny Din, call sign Charlie. He's got a background that is kind of baffling. So he's born April 21st, 1975 in Saigon, Vietnam. Spent eight years in Vietnam and then moved to France as a child. Spent his... Up into early teenage years in yeah. Paris, right? Yeah, yeah. Then, after Paris, family moves to the U.S., Los Angeles area. He speaks a bunch of languages, but none of them is English. <laughs> Decides to, uh, after high school, go to college, and after college, join the Marine Corps. Goes into the Marine Corps as a weapon system officer, or WIZO, which we'll get into later. And then, after some time in combat, decides he wants to be a pilot, so goes and becomes a pilot. Flies F-18s, goes back to combat, likes mountain biking, so decides to go mountain biking down a ski slope in the off-season, breaks his neck and back, right? Yeah. So he's paralyzed, then has to learn how to walk again, goes through some significant challenges, and currently a very successful husband, father of two, and flies airplanes full of boxes around the world. Uh, It's an honor to be with... Mr. Johnny Din, call sign Charlie. Charlie, welcome, bro. Thanks, thanks. Uh, actually, I got three kids, but... You got yeah, three? Yeah. Oh, I only met two. Yeah, I only met two. All right, sorry, man. So three. <laughs> three. We'll, we'll throw the plug in there for the third kid. Yeah. So, man, thanks for making the time for this and the accommodations. And there's a lot of stuff I wanted to talk about that I think is really cool. And this kind of manifested from when we all were in Atlanta recently for some sad circumstances. We got to telling stories. And I had no idea, man, the whole paralyzed, learn how to walk, all the stuff that you had been through and... And growing up and everything is kind of gnarly. So I wanted to hit some, I think, pretty cool life lessons that are applicable today. So yeah, but dude, let's, sure. let's back up to the beginning. So, <laughs> dude, you're born in Vietnam. 1975. Yeah. That is at the, I mean, that's just post-Vietnam. Right. So, I mean, that's at the end of it, you know, kind of crossing um, the two, if you will, from, uh, from a free, you know, when we refer to as free is in like a non-communist Vietnam. So up until you were born, until you were eight years old, you were in full communist Vietnam. Yeah, that's right. What do you um, remember about that? You know, a um, couple things. The The most poignant thing is the um, the fact that we didn't have anything. Uh, I just spoke to my mom, actually, a few days ago, and we were talking about it. Um, the one memory that I had that was struck with me forever um, is being hungry. 
And, and I say that because there were various parts of that period that changed. Uh, and we can go into it a little bit, but um, afterwards, you know, when we were faced with, hey, we the money ran out, my parents couldn't work, um, and they were, couldn't work because the party at the time deemed them as, you know, not the people that should be allowed to work or so should the, be allowed. So these were the, were your folks of the more the democratic sympathizers or people who were not well exactly. so my my family my grandfather on my mom's side you know he was very patriotic uh you know and fought against the um, the communist uh as a matter of fact i don't know much because i wasn't born yet but my mom said and you know he they were pretty wealthy prior to the end of the war but they could have left any time they wanted to but you know the, the way that i understand is that he didn't allow anybody to leave until the end and, you know, we were still fighting, so nobody's allowed to leave. Otherwise, they could have picked up and took all their money and resettled somewhere else, you know, sure. and it would have been fine. But, yeah, so no, my family stayed all the way until the end, everybody. And when you say Hungary, you know, when, when, when the communists came in and they basically kind of took everything and my, my dad wasn't allowed to work anymore, um, he had to, like, check in with every male of his uh, period. They had to check in in the morning registered himself and they weren't allowed to go to work so you, whatever you had in the bank didn't exist anymore whatever assets you had didn't, didn't exist anymore so you know they were selling whatever they had you know like silverware furniture whatever they had they possessed at the time they sold it to be able to you know have a little bit of money and buy food and buy things that's all they could do uh relied on relatives but it's a survival mode at that point in time so even your relatives they had to take care of their families too so, How many siblings were in your family? So for me, my immediate family, it's just me and my brother. He's a year older than me. Um, but, you know, my mom comes from a very large family, and so does my dad. She's the youngest, I think 13, 13 kids, and that's, that's a, a lot. That's a party. Yeah. So, you know, when, uh, when all that happened and after we tried to escape, you know, um, we, we lost everything, essentially. And So we, the communists, they took all assets from families? Yeah, so it's not like they, they, they came in and, and, and took everything from your house. It's whatever you had in the bank then wasn't worth anything anymore, right? Um, whatever gold you managed to stash is, is what they were using to, to barter. I mean, the, the currency at the time ceased to exist, right? So whatever they had wasn't, value, wasn't valuable anymore. And those who were able to convert their money into gold, they used those as a... Um, as a mean to, to trade. So my, my mom, for example, was telling me that, you know, in order for us to, um, when we tried to escape when I was five or six, I think it was six, we tried to escape by boat, but we didn't have any money. So the only way that we could pay the coyotes to s smuggle us out. So those are the smugglers. Right? Yeah. So my, my aunt had some money, so she guaranteed them that if we were successfully, you know, able to get out of the country, and get into a refugee camp or, you know, best case scenario, get to the U.S., that she would pay them. And I think she said something like 10 bars of gold. You know, that was a going currency. That's how they traded. What was, where would you, where, where's a good escape to destination? Where, where would people try to go? So at the time, the, the hope is that you get on one of the small boats and then you go out and float to sea and you hope to get past the, the, uh, the Thai pirates and, and get to like a refugee camp and 
either Thailand or the Philippines or, but, but mostly they try to get picked up by, you know, a major vessel, like a U.S. merchant vessel. So it's not really a plan. No, it's just like get, get out as far as you can. As a matter of fact, that's the reason why we aborted it. I mean, we can go into it now, but I think we were, I was six and the situation was getting so dire for us. You know, we knew that there was no way that we were going to survive this. If we kept going, we kept living, you know. My, my parents weren't allowed to work and there was no future ahead, right? And just imagine, like, the the situation that would cause you as a parent of toddlers to say, hey, I'm going to risk everything and risk life and, or death just to see if I can get picked up by a vessel out on the open sea and get into a refugee camp and hope to get to another country. So that's what we faced, we're, along with many, many families. Um, we're not the only ones. So we... You know, they, they arranged this whole thing through coyotes and whatnot. And like I said, my, my aunt kind of posted a, hey, if we successfully got him out there, we I would pay them, you know, X amount of bars of gold. Um, and, and at the time, one of the biggest dangers was um, the Thai pirates. Yeah, what happens when you run into Thai pirates? Um, so we didn't, but when they knew that a lot of like the, um, uh, a lot of the people basically took whatever possession they had with them. A lot of it was jewelry and gold so that when, wherever they found themselves, they could start anew, right? And so they would basically hang out there and wait for these boats to come out. And there were stories of like, you know, rapes and pillaging and kidnapping girls and, you know, sold in, selling them into prostitution. I knew some families that I, that I hung out with in Houston uh, in Corpus Christi, actually, when I was uh, stationed out there for flight school. And that's what happened to them. They nearly died. I mean, they ran out of food and ran out of everything um, before they got picked up by a merchant vessel. Um, they got, you know, pillaged by the, uh, by the Thai pirates. So that was a very, very common theme, you know, if you will. A common plight for boat, they call them boat people. Well, for us... Um, they, the coyotes basically told my family, you know, my, my mom, my dad, my brother and I, that we needed to basically dress like village people and hop on a bus from Saigon and go to a small village uh, to the south, the southwest of uh, Vietnam by the, by the beach, right? It's a well-known destination where a lot of people would try to escape from there because it's close to the um, Thailand border. Um, so we found ourselves, you know, like in, in a small little village hiding in a, uh, in a house that, that was kind of like a, uh, a hideout place. And then middle of the night, and they chose a night that was no moon, dark as hell. You know, my mom told me, she's like, when it's dark out in the countryside, it is so dark, you can't see anything. So late at night, they, they told her, say, hey, it's time to go. You got to go, go out to the hiding spot for, for the boat. And, and that part I remember. I remember being woken up in the middle of the night, and my brother and I just being tired, but we're walking all night long. I don't know the distance. I don't know how far. I don't know how long. I just remember being very, very long and tiring. And we walked through, like, the rice paddies, muddy fields. And my mom said, you know, you know, she had mud all the way up to her thighs, you know, and it was very hard to walk. And I couldn't walk, so she would have to hold me, pick me up, and my dad would hold my brother. And we would basically hide in the rice paddies all night uh, after we got to the destination. And, uh, and I just remember like being really, really tired and really sick. And, uh, she told me, she's like, Hey, you know, you had a fever. 
So we were afraid that you would cough and give up our position. So your dad had to like you know, chew on the uh, Tylenol pill and put it in your mouth so you can feel better. Holy cow. What did, Hank, was there a pep talk before this? What did your parents tell you, no. if anything? Hey, Nothing. we're going on a walk or we're going somewhere. Yeah, my, I just remember, you know, one, one day getting on a bus and going to this place I didn't know. We didn't ask any questions. Um, but I just remember in the middle of the night being woken up and being told that we got to go. Did you know, based on how you saw your life kind of change, you know, when Saigon officially fell, that things were getting rough for the family? So you remember, like, I I was born right at the end of it, right? And so everything I know is from what my mom told me. Uh, I saw the pictures of how life was for them before. Um, they were, like I said, fairly well off. Um, they had vacation homes. They had, you know, fairly big house. They had maids and all that. Um, so when I grew up, I didn't know anything else. I didn't know any of that. What I remember growing up is my very first memories were basically when I started going to school. And I remember like maybe being five, right before six, that I could only go to a classroom and the only thing we could do was recite the communist pledge. And I don't remember it now, but uh, the upperclassmen, the older kids would walk around and they would, you know, kind of smack us in the head, back of the head if we didn't say something right or if we didn't have a haircut a certain way and whatnot. That's all I remember. I don't remember being taught anything. I, I didn't learn how to speak Vietnamese. I didn't learn how to read or write or anything. It's not like, you know, like the kindergarten, like my kids, when I watch them go to preschool, you know, and they get Dr. Seuss and <laughs> yeah, you had a little bit different experience. Yeah. So that, that was my, you know, growing up, I, I didn't know what it was before because I was born at the end of it. Um, so keep, finish with the story. So you are, yeah. you know, your yeah, dad's, so, your dad's chewing up Tylenol to give you cause you might give away their position. Yeah. So my mom is holding me and I just remember she was so scared, you know, she would hold my mouth, you know, really tight so I wouldn't cough and give up a position. Um, and then, you know, the first light coming up and I just remember, you know, all of a sudden we're being told and everybody just hurried up and everybody just rushed out to the beach and there was a small fishing vessel. I mean, it was a big vessel to me cause I was tiny. Right. But, um, it was a fishing vessel that was at the beach and we're running out on the, on, on the water my mom's putting me on there. My brother, my dad's putting my brother on there. My mom's jumping up. So is my dad. And then every family is trying to onboard, right? It's not like you're going to a pier. You're running out in the water, you know, to get onto this fishing vessel. And I just remember the pandemonium. Uh, my mom filled, on, filled in for me a lot of the story, but she said, basically, at that point in time, word got out that the, uh, the soldiers were coming down there. And she said, yeah, they were coming out with rifles and they were coming out with their AKs and, they, you know, they were going to stop us, right? And at that time, my dad saw something he didn't like. And, and, and when I talked to him later on, he said, you know, they were shoving all of the uh, people beneath the deck. And it seemed like they were trying to nail it shut, you know? So he's like, no, that doesn't look good. There's no water. There's no food. It's, it, it, it just looked like a ragtag kind of operation. Um, so he decided to abandon it right then and there. He said, we're not going to survive this trip. So he saw people, so the other refugees. Yeah. Being shoved. 
down under, beneath below that. deck. So that, that's option A is go on that boat, keep going. Yeah. Option B is go back to the beach where soldiers are coming down. That's right. So when you say stop people. So, you know, my mom in her own words said that um, the word was that they were going to kill everybody. They were going to shoot to stop, you know, to prevent the fishing boat from, from getting out. Now, whether or not they would have done that, I don't know. Uh, they didn't do that, obviously, because I'm still here. But um, that's what they thought was going to happen. So that's, that's what they were facing. Like, hey, do we continue with this escape attempt under these circumstances? Or do we go back? So my dad made a, made a decision. He's like, jump off the boat, jump off the boat, you know. And, and I remember, I remember jumping into the water. I couldn't swim. And I remember just like frantically trying to not drown, right? So my mom jumps in and she gets me out. And then I remember as she's holding on to me, and I, all I, I remember this, I mean, it's this picture is like seared in my brain, you know. Uh, the boat is like, you know, taxing out, right? And it's, it's trying to get out, out, out to sea. And my dad is like, running after it like you know waste he's above like he could barely stand up anymore and he's yelling at my brother you know it's like oh jump off jump off you know and my brother was scared too he was standing in there and he wasn't jumping off but the last possible minute he jumped off thank god we would have lost him um and so you know we, we we now get get off to the beach and you know the they knew that the soldiers were, were coming around from the from the cliff and coming down and uh we're all gonna get caught so my mom described, she said that the decision was like all the men were going to go separate themselves from the women and children because they knew that the women and children were more than likely not going to get arrested. And, you know, just give them whatever you have, gold, the jewelry, whatever it was. And so that's what it did. So all the men kind of like separated from the women and children just for safety, right? And, uh, and, and they were making their way back to Saigon. So then my mom, my brother, and I, and a bunch of other women and children were heading back towards the village. And, uh, and then um, she filled in a lot of this memory. I remember a snapshot of it. I don't remember exactly what led to it, but she filled in a lot of it. But basically, the, uh, there was a um, the soldiers, right? They came and they stopped us. They knew we were just trying to uh, attempt to escape. And she said my brother was so scared that um, he's seven, I'm six, right? He basically got down on his knees and just begged them to not kill us and, you know, let us go and, you know, just, just let, you know, just pretend we they didn't see us. And then my mom, she just remembered that and she and the other wives were like, you know, we're just women and children. Why don't, why don't you just let us go? Just take whatever gold we have and just let us go. And they did. So they gave them all the possessions they had and let us go. So we found our way back to the village, found our way onto the bus, and found our way back to Saigon, you know? And, so that, uh, was, that was attempt number one. Yeah, so that was, that was the first escape, you know? And, um, you know, it's, uh, that was the part that I, from that point on, I remember because life became very miserable after that. Um, we had obviously lost everything that we took with us, right? Whatever money they had left and whatever possessions they had left. Um, and then I remember just not having any food. That that memory is like burned into my brain, you know. It's like your stomach feels like it's going to eat itself out from the inside, you know. Uh, every day we would go to a different relative and begging for food and, you know, whatever they could afford to 
to, to, to give us, you know, and, and, and they did what they could, you know, but everybody was facing the same circumstances, you know. And I remember, you know, there, there was one time I, I remember talking to my, uh, I, was, I was there, I was so hungry, and I went to my mom, and I just said to her, I said, I'm so hungry, I, it hurts so much, I don't know what to do. And she just cried and just hugged me, you know, and then I realized, I'm like, well, there's not a whole lot we can do. And I don't think I've complained to my mom ever since then. <laughs> there's nothing else. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. So anyways, um, that was kind of like the the most uh, memorable moments, if you will. Um, okay, so that was, you're, you're six. Yeah, six, you're seven. six. Yeah. And then how long before you guys eventually did leave Vienna? So two years later, um, I don't remember exactly the circumstances, but I, I'll have to ask my mom. But basically, my my parents, uh, rewind a little bit, um, they were from well a family. So as a teenager, my mom and her sisters and whatnot, it was very traditional for my, my my grandparents to send them to Paris to school. So my mom went to Paris and she, as a teenager, you know, she went to a private Catholic school, just like her older sisters. Um, and that's where she, you know, went to school. And my dad was very smart. So he had a scholarship and he went to um, university in, in Paris. Um, I think it was for mechanical engineering um, or economics or something like that. Um, and that's what they met. And that's how, and they were fluent in French at that point in time. And, um, but like I told you, my, my grandfather was very nationalistic, nationalist, and he did not, he did not allow anybody to leave the country. So he kind of told them, say, Hey, you're going to have to go back to Vietnam and get married. And so they did. And so they came back, I think it was 73 or 72. They came back and got married and, you know, kind of life as normal fighting the war. <laughs> and my dad worked in the um, minister's cabinet, I think. It might have been in economic development or whatnot for South Vietnam, obviously. Um, so he had some connections there, and that's how later on, this is like in 83, when um, the French government had some sort of um, deal with the, uh, with the now communist Vietnam regime, and they sponsored out a couple hundred families. And somehow our names were on it, and we were my family were able to get sponsored by the French government. Okay, as as refugee. Got it. So that's that's the part of the story where you end up getting to to France. Paris. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So they they came with like an you know, Air France. Oh, dude, it was it's uh, it crazy. So we flew out of Tansonyat, that's the airport, uh, Ho Chi Minh City, you know, um, uh, international, um, and uh, it was a seven forty seven, Air France. And I, I still remember this. We we got on an airplane, and you know, obviously, I've never seen this, right? And I still remember, like everybody was just crying, you know, my mom and all the adults. And I understood Vietnamese at that point in time. And I, from what I heard, you know, they did they didn't believe that this was real. They didn't believe so these are these are happy tears, happy tears, but also like they were scared to death. They were thinking that this is not real. They're gonna get killed the moment they shut the door and they're going to... The airplane. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, I still remember the Air France stewardess was so kind, so nice. They gave her, they gave all the kids some candies, gave us blankets, um, flew us to Bangkok um, to spend overnight, you know, while they, they refueled and whatnot, and, and then flew to Paris. And I remember they gave my brother and I a bar of chocolate. 
I don't remember what kind of chocolate, but bar chocolate. But mind you, at that point in time, you know, like my mother told you that we didn't have any food. All I remember eating was like a bowl of rice a day, if that, you know. There were days where there was nothing to eat. So I've never had dairy products. I've never had any sweet. I haven't had anything candy, you know, that didn't exist. So when they gave me that, you know, I ate them like, oh, it tastes pretty good. But of course, you know, my body just your body's like, what is this strange <laughs> stuff? Rejected it yeah, immediately, yeah. you know. It was like violent. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so you know, we 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 went to Paris, and I remember getting processed out at the um, at the center. My parents were fluent, so uh, that helps. Yeah, and 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 I remember this. Um, we were taking the metro in Paris. They knew their way around. They were fluent. They knew their way around. And I remember. We Walking off in the street of Paris, we had nothing. They had like a, I think they had a trash bag with clothes that they'd been uh, donated and paperwork. And then we stopped at this very um, old-looking convent. It's like old, you know, very tall walls, big, big uh, wooden door. Knocked on the door. Took a while. Somebody came in, and there was a nun, Catholic nun, that came out. She opened the door, didn't say anything, then closed the door, closed. A few minutes later, an older nun came out and then I don't understand because I didn't speak French at the time but all I remember is that she was crying and hugging my mom and whatnot what that was the same they call it uh, la mère supérieure you know, mother superior like the the, the lead nurse uh, nun right mm-hmm. she was her teacher back in the day when your mom was there studying yeah so she remembered her she remember you know she thought that that was it you know after the fall of Saigon that they were done so, all right. Uh, so, yeah. Dude, right. That, so you're just, you're ten? Seven? No, no. I'm I'm eight. You're eight. You're still okay. Eight. Yeah, six. Add two. That's eight. There we go. Um, 1983. Yeah. But you speak at the time. You speak Vietnamese. Only? I was I was an illiterate Vietnamese because remember we went to school. They didn't teach us anything, so I didn't right. know how to read. I didn't know how to write. I only spoke at whatever you daily language you can hear. Just just think of any illiterate American who never went to school. Right. That, that was equivalent. So you show up eight years old in France. Your brother's nine. Mom and dad, they're fluent. So this is, I mean, that's a pretty good thing to have. Mom and dad yeah. speak the language. I, I'm not saying they're fluent. But, you know, they right. can get by. Right. They, they're they not, basically, they, they know the language enough. And my dad was obviously a French educated and went to college there and everything else. Um, what did you, you know, I mean, culture shock. You know, European culture in general. French culture is very specific. Very so, different from Vietnamese culture. What so was we, the, that we lived, impact? We lived in the convent. We we were housed. They gave us a room with all the nuns and everything else. And we were there until my parents could get themselves on their feet and get an apartment and everything else. So I don't remember how long, but it was it was significant enough for me to remember just sleeping in with my brother in a convent. It's a private Catholic school. It's a private school in one of, you know, in a middle class neighborhood in Paris. Did you go to school? Did you yeah. start going to classes? Oh yeah. So now this is all French. Oh yeah. All right. There, there so was, there, there was. I remember distinctively one other kid other than my brother who looked like me. Okay, so this is the first time this in your life Chinese you got to go to a school in a different country yeah. and learn a brand new language. Oh yeah. And I went to class, and you know they, but you know when you're that young, you you adapt so quick, so quickly. You know you learn the language so quickly. 
Um, and I remember like very fast, you know, I meet friends and I, it, it seemed normal to me. All of a sudden, like the, the one thing I remember the most is like all of a sudden I had food three times a day. And I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. <laughs> this is beautiful. I don't care about anything else. <laughs> I got clothes on my body and I got food. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I learned how to speak French fairly fast, pretty fluent in it. And um, I had a, uh, a friend that at the time, I still remember his name is Titu. That was his nickname. He was from a middle class to maybe a little bit more wealthy family. And in France, in France, oh. yeah. So he was going to that same private school, right? And um, during the summers, they would have um, um, time to go down to the, the vacation home in the south of France. And I still remember the very first year; might have been my ninth. I was nine years old. Yeah, nine. And he asked his parents if I could go with him. And he and I just, by that point in time, I spoke French enough that it was normal, right? So I just remember going to the south of France with him and his parents. But I don't remember ever seeing his parents. I just remember like the two of us living in this uh, kind of like villa by the south of France. And then just being kids, you know, riding our bicycle to the village um, early in the morning to like the boulangerie, you know, where they make bread. And just smelling the, the, the smell of song early in the morning you know and bread you know and just riding a bike with a bucket of water to the uh, uh wine winer uh, the vineyard you know you talk about a different world holy Dude, cow I, it's, it's like i i don't remember the transition i just remember thinking this is this is the life man we would go we would ride it was just like in the movies we would ride two bicycles me and him and we would hold a big old surfboard like a longboard so i'd be in the front or in the back riding my bicycle, holding that end, and he's in the front riding, holding the other end of the longboard. Go down to the beach and just surf all day and then coming back, and there was always food available because they had made, and we just had a blast. It was like the summer, and then I just remember back, and I had completely forgotten where I came from. And you went from Thai pirates, <laughs> jumping on boats, uh, NVA soldiers, uh, trading your gold I mean, to now you're, you're surfboarding and raging with one of your bros on your bikes in the south of France. Yeah. And, and I remember like the following year, you know, we would go to the, they call the Maison de Campagne, you know, like the, the, uh, the house in the, you know, the country house, you know, where we would ride horses, you know. And then in the, uh, in the winter, uh, the school would basically shut down for two and a half months and they would take all the students down to the Alps. And they had a campus there where we would basically go to class in the morning and go to ski school in the afternoon. Jeez, dude. But we couldn't afford it. I didn't know until later that it was my best friend at the time. His family basically said, hey, we're going to sponsor this kid. His friend with, with, their, with their kid, you know. And so that, that was like a whole new reality for me. Here I am, you know, like living in a dorm with a bunch of kids, you know, and we're like in the Alps, you know, we, we're eating food. Meals. You got food, yeah. chocolate. Are you, are you good with chocolate now? Oh, yeah. 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 You can eat chocolate. And then, and I'm, I'm learning to ski in the Alps. You know, it's, what did you notice where you're, I mean, just in the demeanor of your parents and your brother and, you know, once you guys got to France and a little bit of momentum going, how did things kind of change at home? You know, it's, 
it's weird to explain, but at that time, this is like in the 80s, right? My dad quickly assimilated, you know, he had the, the, the French diplomas, he had the degrees, and he was able to get a job, a, well, a well-paying job fairly fast. Uh, my mom was still assimilating, but um, I still remember that they had a lot of, like, issues, emotional issues. Their relationship wasn't really that great. But at the time, um, we weren't like the way that I raise my kids now. You know, we, we know everything to do. We have cell phones, we have cars. We didn't have that, you know. I just remember almost being as a young preteen teenager just on my own a lot. My brother had his friend. I had my friends. We had common friends. Um, every uh, Wednesday was half day for us. Uh, oh, yeah, I forget to mention, we, we transitioned from that private school to uh, public school, right? And so we had this core group of friends, like four guys and four girls, and we were basically best friends, right? And every Wednesday we had a half day, and we would take the metro, go to the um, walk along the sand, all the way out to uh, to the Eiffel Tower, hang out, you know, just being a group of preteens, you know, and and then just um, hanging out together and dating each other and whatnot. As a matter of fact, one of those guys. My best friend ever. He lives here now in the U.S. And he lives in New York as a surgeon. He and I are still tight. I visit him every time I can. And his mom, like my second mom, you know, she lives in Nashville. And I see her every time I go through Nashville. Was it? Was there a lot of uh, refugees at the time? Or were you still, you know, you and your bro, the, you know, you guys are still kind of the the smaller group of Asians that are around. Yeah, dude, I I remember there were maybe three or four other Asians in my whole entire neighborhood that I knew. I mean, of, of course, there were more. Like, right. Um, I think the 13th, our only small is full of uh, Asians. But where we lived, there weren't any. Um, and there were a lot of, like, North African um, like Algerians. refugees. Yeah, yeah. Algerians, yeah. Uh, you know, Senegalese and whatnot. But we were assimilated pretty pretty quick. And then so your mom and dad are getting some momentum going. You're having a pretty good, sounds like a good time as a childhood. Oh, man, it was the best, dude. We, there was no, it's not like the U.S., man. When, you, when you're 12, 13, you're, it's like the equivalent of being a, an 18-year-old here. You know, we were, I would spend a night at my friend's house. I mean, we didn't have any cell phone or internet or any other stuff. You know, you just tell your parents, leave a little note on the fridge, say, hey, I won't be home. I'm at such and such. And we would go and hang out and uh, have parties and kids would smoke very early on. I never did, but yeah, that's a real thing. That's yeah. It, it did. It, we were like living in a big city. You could go anywhere on the Metro. You could go anywhere on the bus. Uh, you didn't need a car, you know? So that, that part of my memory was kind of whirlwind. You know, I just remember growing up really fast. Sounds like a good time, man. Sounds like, Oh, a- I had a blast. And how, how did the transition to the U.S. eventually unfold? Yeah, so my parents, for all their wisdom, saw that even though I spoke French fairly fast and, you know, I assimilated pretty quick, uh, my brother was super smart. He's like a genius, man. In France, in the education system, and most of Europe, I think, it's not like over here. Over here, you can be a straight D student and graduate high school, right? Yep, I know, I know about that. <laughs> go from one one level to the next. I've got some experience in that department. Yeah, in 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 Europe, in France, you know, 
you got to be sort of like a B minus at the minimum, you know, and very early on, they kind of like tell you, hey, you know, academic academia is, is really not your path. Why don't we look at vocational schools? Because more than likely, you're not going to make it. <laughs> and, and this is not the path for you. So I had to basically call it a redouble. You know, I had to retake one of the years. I can't remember which grade it was. Uh, my brother was getting up to um, about the time where he said has to take the baccalaureate. And this would, would determine whether or not you could make it to high school, right? To high school, not to college. So this is just to get it into high school? Yeah. All right. And it was very clear that he would make it, um, but I wouldn't. Oh, yeah, you're... <laughs> no. I'm, They're not so sure about yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, the younger brother. There's no doubt. There's no doubt I wouldn't, I would have made it. Um but at that point in time, you know, my extended family, my mom's sisters and her brothers, they had sponsored us um, to, to immigrate to the U.S. a long time ago, right? But it takes a long time. And at that point in time, the paperwork came through. Oh, and so they had, they had applied a oh, yeah. long time ago. long time ago. But, you know, when you, when you come in legally, it takes, it takes a while. You know, you, you're at the mercy of whenever they process the paperwork and whatnot. And, uh, and so I, I was 15 at the time. My brother was 16. This is uh, 19, the summer of 1989, right? Almost 1990, I think. And I was going into my ninth grade. Where'd you guys move to? Los Angeles, Los California. LA. San Fernando Valley. San Fernando. So 19, 1990. Yeah. Oh, I should say uh, it was summer of 1989. All right. Right. Uh, going into the freshman year. And they don't tell us that we're moving to the U.S. Moving, moving. Like, hey, we're going to go there. They just tell us, hey, we're going to go on a trip to the U.S. I'm like, oh, awesome. No shit. Yeah. I think my brother kind of knew. I didn't know. Well, he, is, is he the smart one? He's the smart He's one. He's the smart one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Established. <laughs> so we don't tell anybody. Like, we don't tell a soul, you know. And I, And I think... I never knew for real, but I think it's because, you know, their relationship has deteriorated. My parents financially, I think they weren't in the best of places. Um, and I think they wanted just to go, hey, you know what? We're going to just immigrate to the U.S., start a new go. That's what I think. I know for a fact that relationship had kind of uh, deteriorated to the point where they had to do something else. Otherwise, they weren't going to make it as a, you know, as a husband and wife. So, okay. Did you guys learn any English in school? Up to this point? My brother. Your brother did? A little bit. So you don't know any English? Do your mom and dad speak English? No. And they tell... No, they don't say anything. We're taking a vac- we're taking a trip to America. Yeah, we're going to visit your, your extended family, um, your relatives. Like, this is awesome. LA? You know, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> and in my mind, dude, when, when we went, you know, in my mind, I picture America as... The picture I had in my mind was... Um, White picket fences, single family, neighborhoods, people riding bicycles, everybody's dressed up. And, and it, it was basically the back to the future. That's, that's what I had in my mind. Right. Suburbs. Yeah. Yeah. But I landed in San Fernando Valley, Van Nuys, living in an area that's more like what Ralph Macchio saw when he came through the Karate Kid, you know, living in those type. Oh, yeah, man. Just like that. That's where we live, you know, walking through pretty crappy neighborhoods, you know. <laughs> And uh, it was a culture shock, man. I was like, what the hell is this place? So, did I mean, when does, you know, the cat come out of the bag that, 
hey, we're not going back to France. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we spent the first couple of weeks, you know, like visiting every family's, you know, and, and whatnot. And then um, here's a funny story. So, you know, in France, we take the bus and metro everywhere. And it's just normal, right? So we, we live in San Fernando Valley and we're going to go visit my family in Orange County. Are you familiar at all? Give me the logistics. I know they're not. No, just go ahead. It's like, it's like going from Beaufort to South to um, Charleston. All right, so it's an hour, right? But you're taking a bus. <laughs> we're like, hey, we're just gonna hop on a bus and we're gonna go through, you know, to Orange County through the valley and through L.A. and whatnot. It was the most miserable hour of my life on a public transportation in L.A. Yeah, <laughs> I dude, remember saying this about, country dude, this is- sucks. <laughs> Let's just remember, like, what in the world? And people take this? This is how they commute? Yeah, man. Welcome to America. And I was I was blown away. I was like, this is crazy. And uh, anyways, and my parents kind of broke the news. So I was like, hey, we're not going back. And my brother was devastated. I mean, he had his core group of friends, his best friend. They're still best friends to this day. I was like, what the heck? You know, my best friend, Nikola, he was, I couldn't even tell him. I didn't even say we couldn't even tell him where we were. And he was devastated. You know, he told me, he's like, dude, I searched for you everywhere. And I couldn't believe it. You guys are packed up. And we had no way to connect, contact yeah. you. Yeah. There was no cell phone, internet, or Facebook and all that crap, you know? Yeah, so it was, man, I remember being depressed and being thinking to myself, like, this this sucks. And you you got to start high school. Yeah. And so for a little bit different for me is that, um, obviously, I didn't speak any English. But I wanted to see America, so... Uh, that summer, my my uncle and my cousin, uh, he's an older cousin, uh, they were doing a road trip, taking a car for his sister to Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis, right? Somewhere around the um, uh, Minnesota area. And I said, hey, do you want to come with us? And I said, yeah, sure. So we went from L.A. all the way up to Seattle, all the way across through the, uh, you know, Yellowstone National Park and all that and went to Minnesota. And then we took the Greyhound bus back. In that trip, I realized how much, how vast America is. The second part, I realized how America had basically, it's every city is a carbon copy of one from the other. Everything is a square. Everything is a grid. Every city has a Martin Luther King Boulevard. Every city has First Street, Second Street, Third Street. <laughs> every city is a block and block and block. And it was so vast. Um, what did you do you remember anything about you know la is very unique in its own culture i yeah. mean neighborhoods in la have different cultures yeah. well, i mean i live in san fernando, san fernando valley so that's not even la that's north la that's, right that's that's in the valley you know so going from there to minnesota to across yellowstone do i mean that? those are you, you go to one neighborhood it's, it can be very very it can be another world so I, i'll tell you something previous state so we were going through i, I want to say iowa it might have been north dakota iowa anyways one of those states right and we were driving for hundreds of miles, straight freeway, nothing, cornfields after cornfields after cornfields. And I remember pulling into, and we had gone to IHOP, and every single day we'd stop somewhere. We'd stop in IHOP in the morning for breakfast. And you know, they served us a little um, meal with three hotcakes and a couple strips of bacon. And, yeah. You know, it was like a small plate. And I'm at this little diner in the middle of the, it's like a truck stop, it's a diner. And I tell my uncle in Vietnamese, you know what I want. And he's ordering. And I don't, I remember that lady just looked at me. You remember now, I was 15. I was five foot one and I weighed maybe 100 pounds. And you're 15? Yeah. Oh, okay. dude. 
I was, I was small. I was like five foot one, you know, maybe a hundred pounds. Right. And I remember she looking at me and then said something to my uncle and then he looked at me and he kind of laughed. He said, uh, she said, you know, are you sure you need all that? And I said, of course, that's what we've been eating. And then she brought it out. My God, the pancakes were the size of the plates <laughs> and three pancakes stacked up to about two inches thick. The bacon was the size of like a full on eight ounce steak. It was massive. And I remember I say, who in the world could eat this by themselves? And then I realized, like, that's why Americans are so big. <laughs> that sounds glorious, dude. <laughs> and I said to myself, like, this is insane. So did you finish it? Hell no. <laughs> Five 100 pounds, man, at 15? Yeah. Holy yeah. shit, when did you start to grow? It was the summer between my freshman and my sophomore year. Holy cow, man. I, okay. I, I jumped from... I don't know what happened. I went from that to five eleven. The bacon this. kicking in, man. Yeah, I know the bacon. No, no more in. rice, dude. Eat some bacon. <laughs> yeah. So, and then we took the greyhound back, and another culture shock. You know, druggies on the bus, people getting kicked out. The bus would stop by in the middle after picking up like a stop, and then kicking people out because they were probably doing drugs and some illicit stuff. And I once again, I said, "Man, the the infrastructure in this country is massive," and the uh, the transport system is terrible. This this is not a country where you can survive without a car. That's the very first memory I had. I'm like, this is insane. So we came back and um, um, and I started my freshman year. And I'll tell you what, man, my parents, God bless this country because they were on welfare, food stamp, Medicare, every single aid that you can possibly have, and you know. My mom worked two jobs while going to school at night, and so did my dad. And, uh, you know, we worked through the ghetto, and they worked their ass off to get off of all of those as fast as they could. But where we live, man, you can see the exploitation of the poor people. You know, you, you, you didn't have a car, so you couldn't go to, like, a supermarket, you know. You'd, you'd right. walk to the local uh, liquor store, right? And what, way, what specific part of town did you guys live in? Uh, Van Nuys. All right. Yes, uh, it was like um, Panorama City, Van Nuys, that area. And, um, you know, you go there and the food stamps, the way it works, like you have a coupon book, you know, 10, 20s, 50s, whatever. And within a certain amount, you could buy like whatever food you, you could buy like, you know, alcohol and whatnot, but you could buy food and then whatever change they're supposed to give you in, in dollars, right? Or they could give you um, the big bill in food stamp back. And I still remember my mom, you know, trying to explain to the clerk that she needed her change. And he said, no change, no change. And you know what they were doing, you know, exploiting, because they knew that it's not like we're going to get in a car that we didn't have and go down to the supermarket, you know. And I just remember just being so upset. I was so mad. I said, and we need to get off this as fast as we could. But without those programs, we, we wouldn't be able to survive. And then comes freshman year. Oh yeah, so and you don't speak a word of English, dude. It was awesome, man. I, I, uh, by then, you know, I fully. What school is this? What school are you going to? So, up in that in, in that area, um, the high school was a senior high school, so tenth, eleventh, twelfth, and middle school went up to ninth grade. So I went to Sepulveda Junior High, and my brother went to uh, James Monroe High School. It's right next to Van Nuys. People know Van Nuys. They don't know, you know, Monroe. By the way, Van Nuys is also where probably the number one place in the nation where they film porn. 
<laughs> bet you didn't know that. Good tip, man. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. That in Venice Beach. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, you know, my my mom would, I just remember this, you know, she, before school started, um, she got on the bus with us and showed us where to get on the bus. And we got off at my exit and she walked in. She go, this is your high school. This is your school. Walked around a little bit, then got back on the bus, went to my brother's high school. This is where you get off. And then showed us how to get back. And the next day was first day of school. My brother and I walked to the bus stop. I, I didn't speak a word of English. He might have spoken five. And I uh, got on the bus. I remember just getting off and I had my little, you know, printout of all the uh, ESL class I had, you know, like, you know what ESL is? English second language, yeah. Yeah, I was in the beginner track. And, You're uh, a kinder, you literally were at the levels, level zero. Pre-K. Pre-K, you know? yeah. And uh, and I remember getting off, you know, I said bye to my brother, I got off the bus, walked to school, I'm like, okay. And I could figure out the classrooms and I would walk from classroom to classroom and uh, San Fernando Valley, uh, probably 90 to 95% of the students in my class were Hispanics. And there were two kids that I, that I remember distinctly. It would be funny. Uh, one kid was a black kid and the other one was a white kid. But they, they could speak English. I can tell they could speak English. And it's just like perplexing to me why they were in this class. Turned out later on, they, were, could, they could speak English, but they were illiterate. And then there was another Vietnamese kid, but he was in only one of my class. He was not, but he was straight from Vietnam. Uh, and he was in my core of my classes. Anyways, so I'm like going from class to class and I'm like, man, nobody, I don't speak English, but I'm pretty sure nobody else does either. No shit. And I'm so they're speaking Spanish. Yeah. Everyone's speaking Spanish. The teachers are speaking Spanish. Half of the kids don't care. They're not, they're learning anything. Uh, the ones that were trying or being kind of like, not bullied, but you know. You could tell they were telling them to shut the F up, you know? They were getting picked on for trying yeah. to learn something. And I remember just walking from class to class and every day and taking a bus going home and I'm talking to my brother. I'm like, man, how, how's your school? Because mine, nobody's learning anything. Nobody's teaching anything. And he's like, oh, you've you got to try hard. You know, you've got to try to learn how to speak English. That's the most important thing. So then uh, I think it was like week two or maybe the second week, the first week. So hang on, man. What is going on at school? Are you talking to anybody? Are you just sit no. in the back of the class and just Dude, I'm going to class not to class. saying shit to anybody? Yeah. So you're hang like lunchtime. Where do you sit? So I, I know quickly that I'm on some program because they gave us a coupon. And all I had to go is go to this line, give this coupon, and I get this free meal. And then you go sit down. I sit down, I eat my meal, and then bell rings, and I know to go to my next class. And then, so you don't say a word to anybody. No, I don't say You don't know what the teacher's saying. I have no idea what anybody's saying. And then you just, you're just you staring at the clock until it's time to catch the bus home. Yep. Not a damn word of English. Not a single word. So after your your bro was like, dude, you got to learn some English. Like, you got to try. Yeah. Did you switch it up a little bit? No. I was just like, what is going on in this world? <laughs> and and I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm, I just left a country that I speak the language. And I have pretty good living. Going to the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, man, surfing dating in girls south in France, God. going skiing in the Alps. Like, what in the now world? Now you got to take the Greyhound. <laughs> and, um, you know, at that point in time, I was sitting in a class, and it was my homeroom teacher. Her name is uh, Madame Labonte. I remember, you know, looking at the walls, and there were a couple of posters of Paris, France in general. And one day, I just heard her say something. 
a couple words in French. That I understood. And immediately I keyed into it and was like, oh, that's interesting. So, you know, at the end of, a, of, the, cl- of the day, you know, I found my way back to her classroom and she's in there by herself. And I timidly walk in and I ask her, said, um, do you speak French? You know, in, in French, obviously. And she gave me this weird look, like, you know, like the face, this, this Yeah, boy. like who, who's Asian dude yeah. speaking to me in French right now? Yeah. And she said, uh, yes, I do. And then at that time, now mind you, I told you last couple of weeks, I've been walking around and spoken to a single person, you know. It was like 100 miles an hour. I was like, oh my God, you got to help me. And I'm, I'm saying this in French, of course, you know, fluent Parisian French. And I'm like, you got to help me. Nobody speaks English. Nobody is teaching me English. You know, I've got to learn how to speak uh, English. And she's like, oh, slow down, slow down. <laughs> Dude. So, you know, and and we spent an hour just going over. I'm like, I just came from Paris. And here I am. This is who I am. And we're going to live here now. And, you know, they put me in this track. Um, nobody speaks English. The teachers are not teaching in English. And, um, yeah, so then she took me under her wing. And every day after class, after school, I would go to her classroom and she would tutor me in, in, in English. She would have these, um, you may not remember, but these old cassette recorders, you know, the yep. A-track. I remember those. And she would record um, segments of NPR. She would have me listen to it and write down as many words as I could understand. And then she also gave me assignments of some other words to look up in the dictionary and to understand the learning. She got me a French-English dictionary. And then she would record her, you know, pronouncing those words so I could go home and practice. On tape? On tape. She would record on tape? On tape. So your your homework was listen to NPR? Yeah, like a segment of NPR, you know, like whatever. And then study these words and a few words a day, and then she would record herself on tape that you'd listen to? Yeah, for those words that she had me study. I would do that every day. And, you know, in, in the winter when it got dark pretty early, sometimes she would give me a ride home. I mean, I can't even think how this would come about in this day and age. I mean, there's no way, you know, like, I, I can't even imagine like a teacher giving a student a ride home, you know, <laughs> in their private cars, you know, it's unthinkable, you know. Was she hot? No. <laughs> if, okay, if she's not hot, it's cool. But if she's hot, man. man. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I just remember thinking of her as this mother figure you know yeah. she was awesome Dude, she, she was, was like a savior for you man yeah in her mid-40s and i loved her you know i i, I love spending time after school and i don't remember having a conversation with my parents about it i don't remember having a conversation with my brother about it i just remember that hey this teacher is teaching me how to speak english and i'm gonna do that and i, and I remember doing it a lot and then um you know it took off. I learned really, really fast. Yeah. How, how does the, the learning of English, because a little bit of language connection here. So Vietnamese mm-hmm. is nothing like French. Yeah. I mean, they're different universes. French is nothing like English. But remember, though, right? my Vietnamese at that time was not a, it was not based on academia, right? I learned it just because my parents spoke it. 
remember when I went to school there, they, they didn't teach us anything. I didn't learn the alphabet. I didn't learn the accent. I didn't learn how to compose a sentence. I just knew how to speak from my parents and obviously my neighbors, my kid, the kids around me. So the only like formal learning I had was in French. You know, the grammar structure, the, you know, the way you pronounce the words. Um, so I, I think that helped me a lot. Um, and, and I learned how to speak English really fast. Yeah. Well, how did, how quickly did you pick up how, from going from, you know, kindergarten, I don't by speak the, by a, the time a damn I finished, word. By the time I finished my freshman year in high school, I was in regular English class. No shit. I tested out. Now, I had a massive, massive French accent. <laughs> I think you can still. All right, hang on, hang on. What did you sound like back oh, in the oh day? If, if you can imagine Kevin Klein in the French Kiss, the movie from 20 years ago. Dude, no idea. What did, what, did, what did Charlie Dan sound like <laughs> when you were 15 in English? Like a French dude. What did you sound like? Uh, je ne sais pas. That's my. That's the way that the French people speak. Right, I know, exactly. but in English with your French accent, I don't even know how to replicate that anymore because <laughs> I told- worked so hard to lose it. Yeah, as a matter of fact, if you go back to some of the early Bengals, my very first squash, the, the early Bengals that were my my squash mate, man, they used to tease me mercilessly because I would I would have every now and then I would have this heavy thick French accent. I remember giving a um, um, I giving a class on the Laser Maverick. This is before we went to uh, OIF. And I was talking about the uh, Laser Maverick. And, and I'm trying to say that, hey, you know what? When it loses the laser signal, it's going to basically deflect up and open up its aperture and looking down. And, and then it's going to hit a... And then the word is the apogee, right? And I didn't know how to say that word in English. So I just said it in how I knew how to say it in French. The apogee. Apogee. <laughs> And everybody just cracked up laughing, you know. <laughs> uh, some guys were not nice about it. You know, uh, yeah. Some guys were like, Standard. I, I can't believe you actually, you know, became a, a marine fighter pilot or, you know, a fighter wizard or whatever. Standard. And you're butchering the yeah. English language. Oh, gosh. Freaking drama yeah. queens. Oh, yeah. yeah standard. There's they're, always a couple. Yeah, there they were guys who were like absolutely, you know, uh, flabbergasted by the fact that I could be a captain in a Marine Corps like them flying jets and yeah and yet i could i couldn't speak english perfectly you know? no but you could speak three languages well, yeah. and they could probably very speak english uh, you know it's funny because uh one of my uh, mentor you know he's he's a good friend now too he's retired as a colonel but he was a major at the time and i was first lieutenant and we were sitting in the radio room and said said the officer was bribing me you know was writing me about how my english was terrible and i didn't get mad i didn't get a rise or anything so he got mad. He's like, you know, he stopped dressing out of the other guy. And he turns around later on and he said, man, Charlie, you got a thick skin, but don't let those guys get, get to you like that. I'm like, I speak three languages. The guy can barely say, you know, 10 words in any <laughs> other language. His opinion doesn't matter. There <laughs> you go. I, I don't feel like I'm inferior. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but that's, that's kind of how I, I viewed it, you know, even in high school and i tell you what, man, having a thick-ass French accent in high school, that didn't hurt. I believe it. I believe it, man. You're like this anomaly. <laughs> that did not cr- hurt. Cruising around L.A., speaking <laughs> French, well, English you know, with a French accent. Yeah, well, we moved a couple times. You know, I, I don't have to get into it, but my, my parents, unfortunately, their relationship didn't survive, you know, all the drama that they had. 
and uh, and all the trauma they had, you know. And uh, by the time I was in my second year, my sophomore year, we they had divorced, and so we moved down to Orange County, California, um, and uh, and I went to school in Garden Grove. And and if you're not familiar, you know, Garden Grove is like, you know, um, Little Saigon area. It's in Orange County, California, and it is like the second biggest enclave of Vietnamese outside of Vietnam. No shit. Yeah. I mean. Did not know that. You ran to, you look at the yearbook, you know, and the wind took like three pages. <laughs> no, the tran took like four pages, you no know. No kidding. So. Well, hang on. Before we get to this yeah, this yeah. part, the what was your teacher's name, Madame? Uh, La Bonté. Okay, so. By the end of freshman year, you test out of English. Yep. Did you keep working with her and tutoring with her after school? No, because remember, it was a senior. Uh, it oh, was a, yeah. So uh, now you went to grade. grades 10, 11, and 12 now. Yeah. So separate school. Right. So did you keep in touch with her or no? I did uh, for a little bit. And then uh, once we moved to Orange County, I stopped. But when I commissioned, I came back and found her. In my full regalia, in my full uniform. No shit. And, I mean, it was emotional for That's her. That's cool, man. She, I remember she was tugging me along and, you know, telling all her friends, the teachers, you know, how, you know, she taught me English. And I was like, and I told her, I said, you know, pivotal, pivotal time for me is meeting you. And I said, I know you're a teacher and that's your job, but what you did was above and beyond and I would not be where I am if you didn't take the time for this little kid, you know, um, and all the time you spent teaching me how to speak English. Here I am, second lieutenant in Marine Corps. Were you in dress blues? I was in my, I was in my alphas. Okay. Yeah, I was in my alphas. They were very cool. Do you still keep in touch with her at all? No, sadly, no. Um, I think she passed on. Um, you know, at the time I was 15 and she was in her late forties, I think. So it's been a hot minute, you know? Yeah, I gotcha. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was a fond memory of mine coming yeah. over and having, you know, the, they said that you, you encountered the right people at the right time. And that certainly was for me. Yeah. That's a kind of a random experience. You yeah. happen to have a homeroom teacher that's fluent in French. Yeah. And my ability to speak French certainly helped me more so than the kids who came straight from Vietnam. Because I also made friends with a uh, couple guys who, you know, came from uh, from Vietnam at the same time that I came from France. And they were fluent in Vietnamese. It's kind of funny, actually. Um, when in high school, you know, there were a couple times in my life when the Vietnamese kids who were like fully assimilated didn't want to hang out with me because they're like, oh, this guy's a fob. I don't know if you know the term, but fresh off the boat. You know? Ah, nice. <laughs> nice. It's not an endearing You're term. one of them. Yeah. They're like, oh, hey, this guy doesn't speak English. No way. And then there were the kids who spoke Vietnamese only. They weren't, you know, very uh, fluent in, in English. They're like, this kid is, you know, he, he wants to be, he's whitewashed. You know, he, he doesn't want to talk to us in Vietnamese. Well, yeah, that's because I'm not fluent like they were because I have. So you're ostracized by yeah everybody. And Classic. Some of my friends later on, they told me that they had a nickname for me and they said I was like a banana. I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, yeah, you're yellow on the outside and white on the inside. Yeah, man. <laughs> Just like one of our people that we know who's brown on the outside and white on the inside. Yeah, he's, a, he's a coconut. Yeah, exactly. So you were a banana. <laughs> I was a banana. Nice. Um, but yeah, dude, it didn't bother me. Okay, so that's, you're, I feel like you're downplaying this significantly. All right, you're show, showing up on LA alone, different world by itself. 
not speaking the language. Okay, so you meet a teacher who helps you with English. She speaks French. That's great. But that's not easy to do to learn a language. What did your folks say? I mean, your parents knew you're showing up to high school not knowing a word of English. Did they, was there any like, hey, go get them, Charlie, or good work, bro, keep trying hard, or or how does it go? Or are they just like, sink or swim, go get them? Yeah, you know, so my my parents, like I said, were kind of um, struggling with the relationship, and they didn't have time, you know. They, they, they were struggling taking a bus to go work, you know, at some, um, some, some stocking job. I think my mom worked at, you know, a or, you know, like a equivalent of a, of a target or something. Right. And my, my same with my dad. Yeah. They're like stocking shelves, you know, and then a pretty simple job, yeah. like nothing, uh, right. Too cosmic and taking a bus to like night school and learning how to speak English themselves. And then, you know, I remember there were a couple of times when my brother and I would go to the bus stop and wait for my mom to get off so we can walk back with her through the ghetto, you know. Um, so they, they didn't have time to give me a pep talk and say, hey, you know, you need to do your best. But at the same time, I don't think we needed it. My brother and I was just, this is the situation. This is what we had to do. And there was no question. Where did that come from, though? Where does that whole... I certainly think that struggling in Vietnam early on, um, knowing, you know, that we didn't have money and we didn't have food and we tried to escape a country, we started new. So this is not the first time we had encountered something like this. And this wasn't bad. We lived with my uncle and we had a nice apartment. We had food in the fridge. So to me, it was not a big deal. In the grand scheme of things, compared to what you experienced in your childhood, right. this is not... It sucked. I yeah. mean, you know, I think for me, it was being a selfish teenager was I miss my friends. I miss that ability to walk down to the Eiffel Tower and have a good time with my friends and, you know, worrying about girls and, and whatnot. But that was it. The rest of it and learning how to speak another language and simulating to me, that was just something you had to do. There was no coddling. No, certainly not. It was, I, you got to figure it out. I didn't have a relationship with my dad. Um, I didn't have a relationship much with my mom at the time either. Like I said, they were both struggling to survive. And I mean, I think she was in maybe her late 30s, early 40s during this time. Um, so it's not like we had a relationship where we could sit down and talk about, oh, how, how was school? How did it go? I, I spoke to my brother every now and then, and then I had my uncle that we live with. Um, but that was it, man. I figured it out on my own. And your brother, so he did he find a tutor or a teacher? Man, or? he's he's a he's a bona fide genius, man. He had a little bit of English from the time when he was in France, and he was in two classes ahead of me, right? So he was a little more advanced, and he learned it himself too. He was so smart; he could pick it up so fast. And he is like a bona fide genius when it comes to mathematics. I mean, he was like calculus was. You know, the, the eight calculus A, B, B, C that we all took as a senior. Dude, he was doing that as a sophomore. Um, here's, so, here's an example, right? By the time he graduated high school, he had a full scholarship for Berkeley, UCLA, all the UCs that he applied for. Just three years. So I don't remember me and him sitting down and talking about how he learned and how he, you know, 
assimilated so quick because we were in a different school to begin with. And then after that, when we moved, you know, he had his own core group of friends. And you remember that at that time, you know, yeah. you might be a year Teenagers. apart, but you're like 10 years apart. Yeah, exactly. You know, did you guys try to keep English a regular language at home or was it all French or all Vietnamese when you got home? So my, my mom um, was pretty adamant that we speak English at home so that we can learn. Uh, my brother and I, we spoke French to each other. You know, that was our primary language. But then it wasn't much of a home to begin with. It wasn't. It wasn't. We bounced between uncles and relatives, you know, just the three of us. And, you know, whenever we, I mean, like I said, my mom was a, the only person making money, working like, you know, stocking shelves and whatnot. So we were living between relatives wherever we could. And whenever she could rent an apartment, we were living in an apartment. But then, you know, my brother, I remember at some point in time, he was working high school job just to help her out, you know. So, no, there, there wasn't like, hey, we're going to have dinner. We're going to have, you know, Saturday brunch. No, that stuff didn't exist. So you and your bro, were, you had a pretty strong background of just being independent? Yeah, I'd say so. And that yeah, also helped, sure. you know, growing up in France where you can just jump on the metro and go wherever you want. Yeah, man, in Europe and in, in Asia in general, you grew up a lot faster than in America. You're independent a lot earlier. That makes sense. A lot. And a that's going to play a role a little bit later on in this, this little conversation. So I wanted to talk briefly about, we mentioned earlier, the Asian mom effect. Yeah. Or the Asian parents effect. And how, at least in your house... Uh, you know, parents are having some difficulty, but there really wasn't time for the whole coddling or the whole, Nurture. we're going to take care of you. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe some things that maybe are a good idea on occasion, but the the fact that you and your bro, you got to figure it out and you guys had that, that attitude kind of in advance. Yeah, man. Did that have a role in your general just kind of performance in school, in learning the language, in, yeah. you know, just being a teenager? So my mom was only 18 years older than me, 19 years older than me. She was very young when she had my brother. You know, she was, what, 17? And by the time she was in the 30s, trying to, I mean, I think she was 26 when she was holding me in her arms, hiding in the rice paddies, about to jump on this fishing vessel to escape a country. So you can imagine that, you know, her, her motherhood, um, experience was not like an easy one, right? By the time we got to France, you know, she's trying to, struggling to make her relationship work. So there was not a whole lot of time for kind of like the normal relationship you would have with parent and children, right? And by the time we got to America, it was survival mode. That's the best way I can think of. I remember her working whatever job she could to you know, provide for us. And back then, you know, um, we had clothes from Goodwill and we had shoes from Payless Shoe Source. You you know what I'm talking about? Payless Dude, Shoe Dude, I know Payless Shoe Source. Man. <laughs> that get, was like a big deal. Yeah, Let's go you, to Payless and get some you shoes. You get one pair. And when you had a hole in the bottom, which invariably it does, you duct taped it and kept it together. That That was our childhood. That was our high school experience. 
whatever money she could scrounge to buy a used car that was like 20 years old, you know, to get to and from work, work. We didn't have that. We took the bus and we walked, you know. So we never, ever felt like we were lacking, but we also knew that we didn't have what the other kids had. So I think, you know, deep down inside, it kind of gave you the motivation that you needed to. There was no question. If you don't succeed, you know what was waiting for you because you're living it or you just came from that. So there's no greater motivation than trying to get out of the shitty situation. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I wasn't a good student, man. Bounced three different high school. You know, went from home to home to home to home. Um, I wasn't interested in school. Now, was I smart? Yeah, I'd say I was smart. You know, it took a fair amount of ability to learn English that quick. It fair. I took my once and only ever SAT I took because somebody told me I had to take an SAT. It was six months after coming to America, and I scored a 1,000. I think 1060 was my score. That's pretty good. All of it was math. <laughs> you, you know, it's, I wasn't dumb, but at the same time, I don't think I gave myself a chance of being a really good scholar like my brother. Kind of bounced around. I knew I needed to finish. But at the same time, I knew that I needed to do well enough to finish school. So how did college happen? Oh, man, that's a whole story, man. Um, so... Like my you finished up high school. Well, before that. So my senior year, my brother, he gets a full ride at Berkeley. So he moves up to Berkeley. Expectations are high, man. He goes to Berkeley and my mom is trying to make ends meet. So it's just me and her, you know. And she goes, um, and we live at my uncle's. Um, and, you know, relationship is strained a little bit. I'm pissed off at the world. You know, I, I my dad is gone. I don't. When, when did he disappear? He bounced like the year we got to the U.S. And then what happened? He kind of just, you know, like, hey, he had, a, he had to find his, his life. He had to try to relive what he lost, you know, and, and we weren't part of that, you know. I see. So when, when that happened, you know, I, I was kind of pissed off and my brother left and he and I were super tight. And so I, emotionally, I, wasn't, I was not in the best place. But I was also a little shithead to my mom too, you know. I didn't want to be home. Um, we lived with my uncle who was renovating a house in kind of like the ghetto of Santa Ana, but they did what they could, you know, at the time they provided us with a place where, you know, it, it was a room, but they were renovating the room. So every now and then there was a wall that was missing. Just imagine that you had a tarp to cover up your wall and I'm 16, 17 and whatever, how old I was. And I was like, what the heck is this? You know? So I didn't want to be home. So I bounced from like friends to friends to friends. And finally, you know, when I was coming home late one night and my aunt, you know, was mad at my mom. She was like, you need to put him in, in check. You know, he can't be coming home late. And the dogs are barking and waking up everybody. And so my mom was like telling me, you know, tearfully saying, you know, why can't you just make it easy for me? You know, I'm only doing this because I have to take care of you. And that really pissed me off. <laughs> And remember, like, I was a shithead to begin with, you know. So I was like, nobody needed to take care of me. So, you know, I, I the next day, I remember I, was, I left the house, you know. And I walked up to the um, brokers in uh, Westminster. And I remember walking around. Then I saw the Marine recruiter. 
for Wagtail. How do I enlist? And you guys, well, you're not 18. Come back when you're senior. I'm a junior. He's like the end of junior year. And um, so I go, okay. Uh, walk next door. Air Force, same thing. Army. Oh, we have a delayed entry program. You go to boot camp this summer. Come back, finish your senior year. And, uh, and then you can, um, and then you come back for your advanced training. It's a buddy program. So you know, I, I talked my good friend into, hey, we do buddy enlisting and we go in the army. It's an army range of program, you know, it's going to be awesome. So came back and he's like, what are you minor? We need your parents to sign this. So okay. Came back a couple of hours later. It was signed <laughs> by my mom. <laughs> Did she really sign it? My mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Quote, 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 unquote. Your quote, mom. Unquote. Did you just use your opposite hand and yeah, sign her signature? Exactly. Yeah, that's what I would have done. Um, so your mom signs your, yeah. cause you're under 18 yeah. and then do the whole thing, go through the maps, like it made everything set up and the recruiter was a career recruiter. And, uh, he, he told me, say, Hey, I, I need, I need to meet your parents. So well, my parents are divorced. I was like, well, I need to meet your mom. I said, okay. So I came home one day and I said, Hey mom, you don't need to take care of me anymore. I'm enlisting the army. That's how I told her. So, by the way, we need to go meet this uh, recruiter. She's and, in uh, shock. Uh, yeah, how's the reaction there? She's in shock. You know, she calls my brother at Berkeley. She's like, oh, my God, you have no idea what he's doing. You know, you got to talk him out of it. And my brother's like, he's a, he's a freaking hot mess. It's probably the best thing for him. <laughs> um, yeah, so I shipped out in Fort Leonardwood, Missouri. So you went to boot camp that summer? That summer. Before your senior year? Yep. All right. Oh yeah, I was it happened camp. like this, dude. It, it was like fast. It was yeah. like bang, 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 and I was next. You know, I was on a bus, and I went to boot camp. And mind you, my English is still not good. You know, I'm speaking it with a huge accent, and I get a boot camp, and it was 1992, and I'm in Fort Wood, Missouri. And I was like, "What the world did I? <laughs> this is a good idea. Yeah, good thinking, but I never once." about quitting i was like i'm doing this no matter what and i remember every sunday we had like saturday afternoon to sunday afternoon we had time off so and you just had to have like fire watch you know and everybody's trying Wait, to so you, you're at army boot camp you get liberty like, on the weekends on saturday afternoon like after the first six weeks or four weeks or something like that you get like you know saturday afternoon to sunday afternoon off where you could like um basically go to exchange or you can make phone calls and that kind of stuff. But you, you basically come back to your barracks. Right. You sleep there, like but you're not leaving base. No, you're not leaving base. Okay. Not everybody. Uh, but you could free to go wherever you want to go. And I remember I had nowhere to go. I had nobody to call. So I took everybody's fire watch for money. Then uh, doing, doing mail call. I knew I wasn't going to get any mail because I gave nobody my mail address. <laughs> Nice. So I just stood in the back. Like they would call out names. And week after week, day after day, everybody would get mail. And I'm just sitting there. The DIs noticed that. They were like, this is weird. So then one day, like towards the middle, I get a, a letter. I was like, huh? It was my recruiter. I see where this is going. Yeah. It was literally like, hey, you know, you're doing great, hanging there, blah, blah, blah. If you have any issue, give me a call. I read it. I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> 
you know the DIs called him like, yo, dude, oh, yeah. you got to send this kid a letter. Yeah. And should I had no concerns or worries, you know, nobody, I didn't call my, remember this is the day where cell phone wasn't a thing, right? You didn't have internet. It was dollar AOL network, right? Anyways, so I come back. Um, and so I hadn't talked to my mom or anybody, my brother or anybody. Finished boot camp and I fly back. And I remember being at the airport and trying to get a hold of my mom. and Nobody's picking up the phone. And finally, I, I called. The only number I remember was my aunt's number, the, the one that we were staying with. And I remember telling her, I was like, well, your mom moved to San Francisco. So, um, yeah. And I said, okay, so what do I, where do I go? She goes, well, you don't live here. <laughs> okay. It's like, all right. All right. So this is, how long is boot camp? Three months? I, it's like the entire summer. All right. I can't remember. It's, it might've been 10 weeks. So you like leave, that. you, when yeah. you leave, you live in Santa Ana. Yeah. And then when you finish boot camp, your mom moved to San Fran yeah. and your aunt's like, you don't live here anymore. Yeah. Nice. Dude. Welcome home, Charlie. Yeah, man. So anyways, I get a hold of my mom eventually, you know, and I, I'm standing at, remember this, I stand, I'm standing in John Wayne airport and I've got my duffel bag, the two duffel bags and I have, I'm in my green army suit, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, what the hell? So I, I call around, call around and finally I get a hold of one of my friend from high school. So I go over to his house and trying to sort things out. Then um, my brother, you know, puts me in touch and then. And my mom gives, I mean, she, she tried, you know, she's like, Hey, I thought you were going to the army. I'm like, yeah, but I got to finish my senior year in high school. She's like, well, why don't you come up here and live with me up here in San Francisco? And then you can finish school here. And I had no intention. Like, no, I'm not doing that. So yeah, so I, I didn't go. So I went back to Conner Grove high school and registered myself for my senior year. Where'd you live? With friends. <laughs> With, were you the guy on the couch senior year oh yeah i was bouncing from place to place couch to couch yeah i reconnected with my dad briefly you know stayed with him for a little bit couldn't stand it then you know i oh i scrounged whatever money i had from the boot camp and i bought a uh 1971 bug nice just yeah. a pimp mobile dude i had no drive license no insurance didn't matter <laughs> It was stick shift. I love it. I went to buy it. I'm like, stick shift. What color was it? Uh, it's, it was like a mix of uh, worn out, rusted out metal <laughs> and white. So rust and metal. Pretty much. But it's got wheels. Yeah. And and it's, it was a manual, a stick shift. I've never driven a stick shift until that day. I showed up. I was like, hey, show me how to drive. By the time I got home, I, learned, I knew how to drive stick shift. <laughs> okay. So no license <laughs> in a rusty white bug. Living on the couch. Yeah. Bounce with my dad a little bit. And then, um, how was senior year after boot camp? Did, did boot camp, uh, change a little bit, grow up a little bit, get you out of your shithead ways? Yeah, in a way, but it reinforced to me how shitty my situation was. And then I knew full well by that point in time that, you know, I, I didn't have a normal childhood. You know, I, I was bouncing between friends and, you know, I, even when I was living with my dad, he was, might as well not be my dad. You know, he, we didn't have a relationship at all. Um, I, I felt almost like I was homeless. So you're pretty was. angry at the world right oh, now? Oh yeah, dude. I Still? Was, I was pissed off. 
I had no desire to go to college. I had no desire to do anything. At that point, I remember like the army was a good outlet. I was like, I'm set. I graduated high school and I'm enlisting. You know, I, I love having a purpose. You know, I love being able to go somewhere and didn't matter what you had. You know, you, you had the same uniform as everybody else. You get a paycheck twice a month. Part of a tribe. Yep. You go to a um, chow hall and you get meals, you know. So senior year was a blur, man. I, I remember going to visit my brother um, during spring break up in Berkeley. And, and mind you, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't dumb. You know, I, was, I didn't give myself a chance to be excelling as a student, but I wasn't dumb. I, I knew I needed to do what I needed to do to graduate. So I was in like honors English. And oh, by the way. Yeah, after two, two years. Honors three years. English? Yeah, man. Damn, dude. I <laughs> probably wouldn't have passed honors English. I was in like AP classes, you know, all that. Um, you know, I, was, I remember being in my um, pre-calculus class, or so maybe in my calculus. I can't remember. AP physics or something like that. And um, and I remember going, this is, I just need to pass. I just need to graduate so I can go and enlist in the Army. At that point in time, that's all I thought about. I just need to survive between now and then, you know, where I lived didn't matter, where, how I got there didn't matter. That's all I needed to do. So I went up to visit my brother and, and the way I went up is I hitchhiked my way up there to Berkeley and, and spring break is like what a week long. Yeah. Dude, I stayed two weeks. I stayed in the dorms with him and my brother was at one of the dorms with his two roommates. One of them Vidget. 26 or 25 graduated from Stanford after Berkeley graduated from Stanford with his PhD, you know, ultra smart electrical engineer guy. The other guy, his other roommate equally smart graduated from, yeah, I can't remember one of those schools with a doctorate as well. But when I went up there to visit him, man, they were all potheads. My brother included <laughs> like in the dorm smoking weed and going to class, you know, ultra smart kids. Uh, I would go to class with them. You know, I, and I would try to, you know, impress the girls. Like, yeah, I'm taking, I'm majoring Just in this. Making some shit up. <laughs> this is yeah. totally making this shit up. Yeah. And finally, my brother's like, hey, man, don't you have to go back to school? <laughs> you got to get out of here, bro. So, yeah. So I, I hitchhiked my so way back. So he kicks you out, you hitchhike back. Yeah. I literally hitchhiked back. I remember the drive back was in the back. I was laying down in the back of a pickup truck that somebody that we had known that was moving back. And I had furniture in there, and I was basically lying underneath the furniture with tarp over my head all the way from San Francisco to Orange County. That's a hike, dude. Dude, it was crazy. Now that I think back, I'm like, what were you thinking? Anyways, I graduate. You know, it's, um, I don't remember it. And it was just, yeah, whatever, just graduate, you know. Then I went back to the Army, and I was supposed to go um, active duty for two years. People don't believe me, but I have, I have the paperwork to prove it. So I was on a two-year buddy enlisted program, not a reserve. But in that year, I go and talk to my recruiter, and I said, hey, you know, I really think I want to go to college, all that. My grades are not great, but they're good enough. He's like, yeah, you know, you should have done that. I told you a long time ago. So he switched out my contract from an active-duty contract to a reserve contract. So now you're in the Army Reserve. Right. The only thing is I went in as a combat engineer, Right, there's no reserve combat engineer slots where I was at, so they switched me to some. So I finished combat engineer advanced school in Fort Leonard, 
But then when I came back to the reserve unit, it was just, you know, some uh, logistics unit and whatever. So I came back to see after that, that this time I am on my own. Like I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not keeping in touch with my dad. My mom is up in San Francisco. My brother's up there. Like, there's nothing. So you just, it's just you and the, the Volkswagen rusty bug. Yeah, man. So that's I'm, it. I'm back in Orange County and I'm bouncing, um, same friends, you know, and he's going to Cal State Long Beach. Right. I, I, I'm thinking to myself, like, man, I don't have a whole lot of money. I, I need to find a job. But I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure this out. So he's like, hey, I'm going to go um, to see a high school counselor. And, uh, you know, you want to come with me? And I say, yeah, sure. I don't have anything to do. Wait, hang on a second. So you're a reservist now. You're Army reservist. Mm-hmm. You told the recruiter you want to go to college. Yeah. Do they, do you get into college? Are you? No. So you, not yet. So he's literally give me a reserve contract. So I come back and I'm in the reserve. You know, I haven't checked into my unit yet. You know, it's... Uh, and what's your MOS now? What did they change it to? So logistics or something or another. Right, so you're Lago, rock yeah. and roll. All right, cool. Yeah. Or Log. But, but they haven't changed anything because I'm still a combat engineer. I was like 11, 13 Bravo or some, something like that. And uh, uh, 13 Bravo, that's what it was. 13 Bravo. And and I'm, I'm in this like weird kind of time where I haven't checked into my reserve unit I haven't gone to school. I don't have any colleges that I apply to. Nothing. Right. And so I go with my buddy to our high school counselor. And she's talking to him. And he's going to Cal State Long Beach, which is really close to us. And then she asked me, she's like, so, John, what do you, what, what's your plans? What are you doing? So that's, I told her exactly what had just happened. And she's just looking at me in disbelief. And she's like, I had no idea that's what you faced while you were going to school here. And I'm like, yeah. It's not a big deal. Yeah, no big deal. It's like this for most people, right? <laughs> That's normal, right? So she, once again, um, the right people at the right time. And she, she's like, hey, I have a friend who's a counselor, EOP counselor at Cal Long Beach. Why don't you go talk to her right now? And she gets up on the phone, calls her and says, hey, you know, and I'm sitting across from her and she's like, got this kid. He's got an incredible life story. You've got to hear him out. See what you can do to help him. I'm going to send you his transcript and all that. Um, I go there, right? And I obviously remember I have my 1060 SAT. So back then it was, that wasn't great, but it was good enough for mm-hmm. state school, right? So I go in and I talk to this counselor. And she goes away and talks to somebody, comes back. School starts in like a week. Uh, yeah, less than a week. You know, this is like August time frame. And then she comes back. She goes, so what's your plan if you go to... Once you go to college, I'm like, well, if I can get in college, then I can get all the grants and I can get student loans and then I, then I'll have money to live. I can rent an apartment. You know what I mean? All those. So she goes away and comes back. She goes, well, we can admit you under the EOP. You have your grades good enough. SAT scores good enough. We can admit you under the Equal Opportunity Program under one condition. I was like, what's that? She goes, you got to go to all of those counseling. I say, what counseling? You know? Counseling for kids who were abused, <laughs> neglected. Yeah, kids who try to escape their country when they're six, and you know your standard counseling. So I said, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Sign me up. So on that day, on that day, in August 1993, I got admitted to the school by that counselor. 
she's like, go down to the financial aid office and apply for all the grants, all the Pell grants, all the Cal grant, and all the whatever. So I immediately go down and I fill all the paperwork out of, you know, the uh, student aid. And of course, I qualify for everything because, you know, we had nothing. And all of a sudden, the world just opened up. Now I have a clear path. Man, I have enough money to rent an apartment with my friend, the guy that was coming with me. And they gave me a book grant, you know, 500 bucks per book. So we go up to the top of the school and then uh, stand in line. Funny story, man. <laughs> I'm, wait, hang on. Did you actually buy books? Dude, listen to this one. So I stand in line. <laughs> I'm walking around. It's a long line. By the time I go inside the building, turn a corner, and then all of a sudden this girl jumps in front of me. And I was like, hey, there's a line. You know? She's like, oh, no, no, I've, I've been here the whole time, but I went to the restroom, and I don't know where the guy who's here. And I was like, yeah, well, well you can hang out here. That's Cammy. Get out of here. <laughs> it's your wife. Yeah. And three kids. And been married for how many years? Uh, 28. So she did she actually cut line, or was she really in line? You know, she said she was in line. She cut the <laughs> line, dude. <laughs> that was 30 years ago, man. No shit. Dude, that's freaking cool. So you, you're like, yeah, you can, you can hang out in this line here. Yeah. And then uh, there's um, another story. Yeah. So I was, you know, I was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm new to this school. You know, do you want to show me around? So, so <laughs> where's your wife from? Uh, man, it's a long story, dude. Yeah. But give us the 10 seconds. Where's your wife from? She was born in Cambodia. And had a similar experience, right? Yeah. Her family escaped the uh, Khmer Rouge uh, genocide. Uh, when she was about the same age when I was trying to escape Vietnam, her family had to basically walk from Phnom Penh, the uh, capital, escaping, you know, people trying to kill them and walk across the mountain range to the refugee camp in Thailand. How far is that? It's, uh, it's quite a ways. <laughs> it's, I got to Google that yeah. and figure out how far that is. And she was in a refugee camp at uh, Kawidong. And they... Survived there. I've got pictures. I'll show it to you later. I mean, living like mud huts and makeshift. And then she gets sponsored. And you and she randomly cuts the line yeah. to get books at yeah. is Caltech or Cal State? Cal State Long Beach. Cal State Long Beach. Yeah, we met. That's that's how we met when we were 18. 30 years ago. Jeez, bro. Oh, yeah. All right, so did you buy the books? I bought the books. All right. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was expecting a different... Uh, uh, you know, I figured you guys might take the 500 bucks and go down to the beach or something. No, nah, man. But we were dumb. We were, we were dumb. And first time I've got money, I've, I was, I answered to me, myself, and I, you know, nobody else. Are you still angry at the world? At that point in time, uh, no. I think I I was angry at my mom and I was angry at my dad, for sure, you know. I, and I didn't really speak to either one of them. I knew that the only person I could count was was me and my brother, but he had nothing too. So, you know, it's like, I knew that I was the only one and he's, a but it wasn't true. You know, like my mom, she would have dropped everything for me, you know? Yeah. Now being a parent myself, I know what she was going through and it wasn't easy and she had to survive herself and, you know. So what did you decide to major in? And and did you apply a different attitude towards college than you did high school? Not really. Not in the beginning, man. I, I majored in, uh, initially I wanted to be an engineering guy, but I wasn't serious enough. All of a sudden, you know, I became, it's, it's like I won the lottery, man. From the little bit of money I had, which is nothing, to all of a sudden have this money, and credit cards and all that. 
So I, was, I went buckwall. My friend and I, we, we rented a two-bedroom apartment in Seal Beach on the beach. We couldn't afford it. No way. <laughs> but yeah, there we were. Sounds like good decisions, man. Oh, man. Yeah. It's like Lance Corporal decisions. Oh, absolutely, man. <laughs> hey, buy that new Dodge Charger. Oh, that yeah. was me, man. Get that promotion. Let me get a Dodge Charger or a truck that I can't afford. Let's get an oh. F-350. What's in your driveway right now? Yeah. <laughs> an F-250. An F-350. Exactly. <laughs> lift it. <laughs> we'll lift it. See, that's what, that's your, that's your corporal. That's, that, that's the corporal to sergeant bonus. Yeah. Get the F-350 with the gigantic mutters. Yeah. So, so where, where did the, we're, we're going to skip a little bit of stuff just for, yeah. for time, but also, um, when did the Marine Corps become a option yeah so throughout college you know i by then i understood i had a gi bill available um i understood also that life as a enlisted is great but it's better if you go commission source yeah over living and i still remember my first introduction to aviation was doing um advanced training we got picked up by some 60s and they dropped us up on an LZ and everything else. And I saw these pilots coming out and they're, they're wearing, you know, flight suits and they're just chillax and it's an awesome job. And I found out that you could do that as, um, through ROTC as well, you know? So these are army 60 pilots. Yeah. Army 60 pilots. So I said, Hey, you know, I kind of want to do aviation. So I pursued the, uh, army ROTC in college, competed in all the programs and everything else. And, uh, Found out my senior year that I did not get aviation, but I was going to commission as infantry. And I was like, man, I, I don't want to do this, you know. And the way it worked is that you, I was set to go graduate, commission, go to, um, um, you know, the the advanced portion of uh, ROTC graduation, um, some summer course, and then go to um I had gone to airborne school already in one of those summers. You did? Yeah, I did. Uh, at Fort Benning. And um, they were going to send me to Fort Hunter Liggett in Hawaii, I believe, for so, air assault school. That's not terrible. Yeah, air assault school and then IOBC. And then, uh, you know, you'd go to a ranger bat for a uh, ranger school. That, that, that was kind of like the path for, you know, any combat arms officer. Um, anyways, I ran across a Marine Oso out of career fair. And this is the first time I came across Marines in general, right? And he had that little trifold. And I don't, I don't know if you remember, the trifold had a um, picture of a hawk. Hawk jet on top and then a cobra on the bottom. Like a brochure? You know, it's like a, one of those like trifold thing that... Oh, like the poster board? Yeah, yeah. Things yeah. on the desk or yeah. on the table? Yeah, and one of those panels was a Marine recon with like a rope across his chest and all camoed up, you know. And the center was like, no kidding, a picture of an F-18D. It was a Hawks jet and uh, on top and then a, a Cobra on the bottom. You know? And then uh, the other truffle was uh, an AV. So I stopped and I said, hey, you guys have airplanes? He goes, yeah. We offer a guaranteed flight contract too. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. So I told him, I said, hey, this is what I'm at. This is what I'm, I'm going to commission. He goes, well, you know, it's not too late. You can, you can uh, commission in the Marine Corps. But... It has conditions. So I pursued it, and I have discharged paper from the Army. It was a conditional discharge upon me commissioning, successfully passing OCS and commissioning in the Marine Corps. Otherwise, I would owe him, owe them time as enlisted. 
So if you didn't have commission, that. you would have had to go army enlisted. Oh yeah, dude, I have that. I have that. Um, uh, that contract conditional. Yeah, and I actually have a set of discharge papers from the army. <laughs> <laughs> Glorious, man. Uh, dude, okay, so Oso says you can do guaranteed flight contract. Yeah, guaranteed flight contract. You know, it didn't guarantee what what you could fly, but you know, I mean, you know, yeah. Uh, but at the time, you know, the Marine Corps, I don't think had a big requirement for officers recruiting at that point in time. So they also was like, I'm, I'm not sending anybody unless you get a 280 above on the PFT. You know, so you, you, you'd had to prove that you can go and pass OCS. Um, anyways, took me a little while, but I ended up, uh, commissioning and, uh, you know, going to OCS and passing, you know, uh, in the meantime, you know, Cammy. By then, we've been we're married already. She graduates and gets into LAPD. No shit. Yeah. Okay. She goes to the police academy, and I set foot to go to. Your wife's a cop. She was a cop. She was a cop. Yeah. Holy! I'm not surprised now. Well, I mean, after <laughs> hanging out the last couple hours, I'm like, this She's makes badass. this makes sense. She's literally the strongest when, woman I've ever met. She was giving me the tour of the backyard. She's like, I love to destroy things. I was like, okay. You're obviously the special woman that could marry your ass. Yeah, it's for real. So we didn't know which one of us was going to make it through, you know, and I said, you know, I don't know if I'm going to make it through OCS. So you're going to OCS when she's going to the police academy? Yeah. A little bit after she went to the police academy. She was already a beat patrol cop and something like that. But I go to OCS, pass it, commission. She's out on the Venice, I think Venice Beach PD um, division. And um, I go down to Pensacola, you know, and it's like, hey, looks like this is working out. <laughs> you know, I'm, this is, this is actually a thing. Flight school was a lot of fun. So at that time, I, I knew nothing. Oh, but I forgot to mention this, but I got Nami Whammy. Um, at some point, I think it was doing TBS or something or another. I had like a medical exam and... My eyes just were not, um, they said that my right eye was just outside the limit. It wasn't 2020. All right. So this is before it was, cr- you could be correctable at 2020. Yeah. This is well unless you that. were 2020 or better, you yeah. were a no go for yeah. pilot slot. That's right. All right. So you're, you get a medical exam and they say you're not 2020. Yeah. So then they said you can compete for, you know, a wizard slot. What's a wizard slot? I had no idea. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. It's flying. Like, sweet. I could do that. You know? And I got it. So I went down to Pensacola and then went to flight school. And then I realized what it was. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't, I can't do this. Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't know what a wizard was. No. But you got it. Oh, yeah. And then when you found out what a wizard was. Well, the, the best part is they told me, they're like, hey, th- this is awesome. You can do this and then you can transition to be a pilot later. Good sell. Little did I know. Good sell. It was not that simple. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll just swap teams here and you'll be a pilot now. Yeah. So I had no idea. So when you found out what Wizzos are and what they do and that they don't have souls, how did you react? (laughs) Man, I I loved it. But there are a couple things going against me. You know, you got to speak on You have to have a good radio voice. And you've got to speak English pretty good. (laughs) You know, at the time, my English English was Did you still have some French accent going on? Dude. Strong. Oh, nice. So you're a French dude. Half oh, nobody knows that you're no, Vietnamese. Um, they not, hear a French guy. I don't even tell them. They don't even know that I speak French because I don't dude. tell people. You know, and 
<laughs> I'm just going through this. I'm not telling anybody my life story. You know, like this. I'm just going to make this. I'm going to make this happen. As a matter of fact, during flight school, I spent more time chair flying the radio calls than I did anything else. Like I spent more time practicing how to sound on radio. Just how to get rid of your accent. Just to try to practice the radio calls with no accent. And the biggest one was slowing down. Asian people, especially not native speaker, native American speaker, we speak fast. Yeah, Asians talk super fast. Yeah, you ever watch the Joe Coy? Dude, I have. I literally have it here. The, <laughs> the Joe Coy bit on. I have it up on YouTube in front of us. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Because hang on, I'm, let me see if I can do this live. I've never done it before live. <laughs> We're gonna play that because it's I freaking dude, love. Dude, I I die laughing every time because it's so true. Hang on. All right, so this is, I'm going to see if it connects and we can record what it. What did he say? He said Vietnamese sounds like you're doing a drive-by. Well, he says <laughs> Vietnamese sound like they're getting in a fight all the time or something yeah. like that. Let's see if this actually works. And if not, I'll just edit it. But let's see. And we look. I look out into the crowd. You can't tell us apart. You can. You know how many <laughs> Mexicans my mom walks up to and goes, Filipino? <laughs> Mexican! <laughs> Sorry, 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 sorry. There's a way you can tell Asians apart from other Asians. It's by their accent, and only if they have accents. So Out of true. all the Asians, Koreans are the easiest, because when a Korean person talks, they sound like they've been smoking weed all day. <laughs> like right before they talk, just... <laughs> Koreans sound like Asian ghosts. <laughs> My best friend growing up was Korean. I remember the first time I went to his house, his dad yelled from upstairs, I thought the fucking house was haunted. <laughs> Swear to God, right when I walked in. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck was that? He's like, oh, that's my dad. Just wants to know if you're hungry. You can do that with any Asian. Vietnamese. There you go. What? I haven't even done anything yet. <laughs> Vietnamese. I love Vietnamese people. You're my, I love you. You're the smallest of the Asians. <laughs> I kind of defy that a little bit. You're smaller, but I will tell you this. Don't fuck with Vietnamese people. They will fight anybody. Those little fuckers will fight anybody. They don't give a shit. I don't care how strong you are. They will fight you. Oh, dude, they remind, will run up to you Remind and me to talk shit. about that. That's their little feet. I had one run up to me at the end of the show. Hey, dude, what you say to me like that, dude? <laughs> They talk real fast. You know they talk that fast. They talk like that real fast, like dude. What you say to me like that, dude? They talk real fast, like that, dude. Koreans sound like they've been smoking weed all day. Vietnamese people sound like they've been doing cocaine their whole life. Hey, dude, what you say to me like that, dude? Don't you talk to me like that, dude? What you say to me like that? Vietnamese people put a period after every word that comes out. Hey, do what you say to me like that, dude. 
Vietnamese people go real high, they go real high like they do, they go they down low like they do, start low like they do, then they go real high like they do. Oh man. Vietnamese people sound like they're in a car far away and they drive by you real fast when they're talking to you. Like, hey no, I don't say that like that, don't say that. Man, say that shit again, man. Get out of the car, say that shit. I feel like we should just let this play out because he uh, does some really good ones here. Uh, dude. Let's just let it run. <laughs> what? Oh. <laughs> Japanese, only if they have accents you can tell us apart. Japanese, very distinct. When a Japanese man talks, it comes from diaphragm. <laughs> this way, a Japanese man, puh. Japanese. <laughs> Japanese woman, doesn't matter if she's 12 years old or 75 years old, they always sound 12 years old. That's why no one watches Japanese porn. <laughs> <laughs> no one watches Japanese porn. You know how annoying that shit is to watch? Hanu ha. Hattu ha. Hatte ha. All right, let's go. Ba ba ba. Hatte ha. Hattu ha. Oh oh, keep going. Hattu ha. Hatte ha. Oh oh, in my eye. Oh, dude, I, I die every time I watch that. That is uh how accurate would you say that is? Oh, dude, that's so funny, man. That's so Dude, true. it's spot on, man. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned so Vietnamese culture, like going back to he says, dude, the Vietnamese will fight anybody. So in the little bit of research I did, the couple hours of reading on the history of Vietnam, let's get into that, man, because that's a gnarly history. So fun facts that I learned. Vietnam as a whole, first fossils of people back in the day, twenty thousand years ago. But human civilization that somewhat organized, 3000 BC, old. Yeah. And I don't know, fought the Chinese a gazillion times, fought the Mongols a gazillion times. Yeah. And from what I read, because most of the Mongol armies and Chinese armies showed up heavily, much more armor, more capable weapons, um, larger forces, just about every battle and Invasion slash war that I read about, it was all guerrilla warfare. Yeah. And it's, if anybody did any research, like in the 60s, or even before that, about what Vietnam, Vietnam has been doing for the past 3,000 years plus, they've been fighting people. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I said the Vietnamese will fight just about anybody. That's because we've been fucked by every everybody else. We've been Dude, colonized Japanese, by every country. Japanese, Chinese, of French, Mongols, French. Uh, the Dutch, the Portuguese. Yeah. It's about everybody. I mean, even Japan, 1940. Yeah. I mean, did, did the history of it, if anybody did any math on the history of Vietnam and just read about what happens, yeah. you know, they talk about Afghanistan where civilization or where empires go to die. As I'm reading about Vietnam, I'm like, this sounds a lot like Afghanistan. You know, when, when you go somewhere where people... Are not willing to give up the piece of rock until they die, and that's what happens, you know. 
you know, I, I, I don't know if later on I had the epiphany when I told you, you know, that instance when I was in the writing room and I was being made fun of because I didn't speak English well enough by a fellow peer captain, you know. Um, I don't know when that switched over because I remember... Which switched over from... From being the short-tempered, you know, I would get in a fight with just about anybody in high school. So when you went from being angry at the world... Yeah. To fight everybody to just, it doesn't bother me anymore? Dude, I, I almost didn't commission in Marine Corps because I got in a fist fight doing OCS. Oh, nice. Yeah, I remember distinctively, you know, like, um, it, it was about something stupid. But it was this kid who... Uh, who later on ended up getting court-martialed and thrown out of the Marine Corps for embezzling money and other nefarious stuff. But he had said something to me, and then he had made a uh, racial remark to me. But he had done it just enough so that it was outside of ears of anybody else. And so, you know, I I immediately rolled up my fist and we brawled it out, you know. But I did, what I didn't know is that he waited until just the right time because the SBC only saw me rolling him up, you know. And I got sent to the battalion commander. Uh, true shit, man. True story. I stand in front of the battalion commander. I'm about to get kicked out of OCS for, you know, conduct on becoming a candidate or whatever it was. And um, staff sergeant and a gunnery sergeant. One was, uh, I think he was Cuban. The staff sergeant was Cuban. And the um, gunnery sergeant was uh, black, uh, African-American. I didn't know this. I, I didn't have a relationship with these guys. But they kind of knew all of us. You know they how were, they, they were your, your platoon staff? Oh, yeah. That was my, my platoon gunny. What, what did we call them? Like sergeant senior, instructors. Yeah. One was sergeant instructor, the staff sergeant. The gunny yeah. was, um, I can't remember what we called them. Well, no, yeah. Sergeant instructor is what we called them. Yeah, but the senior guy. The senior guy had a different name, different uh, but these guys knew us. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was their business. They knew our character. They knew who we were. They they knew what we were made of. They knew which one of us was the canker sore. You know, which one of us was the, uh, you know, the guy who, who sounds real good, but deep down inside had no substance. You know what I mean? So I went to talk in front of the battalion commander. The uh, company commander had made a recommendation to attract me. And he was standing right next to me. He had, dude, Captain Erickson, that's his name. So the SPC recommended to the battalion commander kick oh, yeah. you out. Oh, yeah. Gunnery Sarn and Staff Sarn. He asked him, the battalion commander asked him, and they both stood for me. So they, uh, straight that's up. significant, man. Dude, they. So they went against the, the platoon oh, commander who's a 100%. captain. 100%. They went against his recommendation. Yep. They When he asked him, when the battalion commander asked him, they both said, you know, I would serve with him anytime in a fleet. What what really pissed me off is that I told my SBC that the guy called me a gook. You know, it was something stupid, man. He was the guy who got recycled from previous class. And so he made himself a scribe because he knew that was the best way to make sure that he always had that Sunday off or whatever. That last weekend or the weekend off, you know what I'm saying? Yep, I know. I know who you're talking about. And so, you know, one day I confronted him about it, and I was like, "Hey, man, there's three of us. The three of us are always on the same rotation." And he started saying something to me, another, and then underneath his breath to me, he's like, "You know, you fucking gook. You know, 
And it was clear as day to me, but only me could hear it. So I slammed him up against the locker and I started freaking bawling at him. Uh, and uh, if you know Tonto already, he's asking me if, if I was the type of guy who would ball up. I don't. He'll tell you. I've never met Tonto. I've just heard stories. Tonto is my one of my mentor, you know, uh, and I still talk to him all the time. I saw him actually at Skull Exchange Command recently. Yeah, I've, I've heard some Tonto stories that are legendary. It's all true. <laughs> like the man's a myth and legend. I heard he's stabbed a guy at the Fallon O Club. And sure, he shortened the knife and then he choked up the knife and the, yeah, he choked up on it. So it was only like an inch long blade. So you know, just minor flesh wound. And when questioned about it, he just said, "I barely stabbed him." You know, that's the the paraphrase version I heard. Uh, yeah, Tano is awesome. But anyways. So, all right. So you, you brawl with this dude. Yeah. And I call, he calls you a gook. Yeah. So at that point when people said stupid shit like that, it still got to you. Yeah, it, it did. Uh, not because of what they said, but because I felt at that time that ain't nobody going to trespass on me without you know, meaning the consequences of it. Right. I don't know why. To this day, I still don't know why I had that sentiment. Maybe because I was pissed off at the world and, you know, and growing up the way I did. But, uh, yeah, I I remember the SPC told me that, you know, I was a head case and something like, you know, I don't have what it takes to be an officer and he was going to recommend for me to be, you know, I tried it. I mean, good on him. He told me that to my face. But yeah, I, I remember standing there and listening to Gunner Sergeant and Staff Sergeant both telling the battalion commander that they would serve with me any day of the week. Was the SPC in the room for that conversation? Yep. So all three of them are there. Mm-hmm. SPC says Charlie's got to go. He didn't talk. The SPC did not. Yeah. He had already, I think the way it worked out, he had already talked to the battalion commander. Okay. And when we went in, it was just the three of us. Uh, I mean, the four of us with the battalion commander. And the battalion sergeant major too, and the two, the gunnery sergeant and staff sergeant were. Uh, I don't remember exactly how the process went. I just remember the uh, the tank commander turning around and asking them, say, "What they asked him about my character." And when I commissioned, those the staff sergeant was my first salute, and then the gunny was the next. Well, that's cool. And they both told me, "It's like, I'm glad to see you commissioned." Dude, that is a great leadership nugget that and that's that's significant man when two senior enlisted are going against the the, the company commander or no the the, the platoon commander can you imagine that the enlisted marines say well, you know my what career um, it doesn't even surpri- began. it doesn't <laughs> surprise me because those guys have such a vested interest in future officers so those guys I mean, they—they they, they are fool. the. They, no. You can't fool them. And they they are, they've already done. They've already been senior DIs at Paris Island or yeah. Crew Depot San Diego to get to OCS. Their their people is their business. Yep. Right. Their people. people. That's their business. You can't fool them. We we'll go through as candidates. They know. They know which one of us is, you know, the malingerer. They, know they can which, spot the shit bags. They they know which one of us is the trust fund baby. They know which one of us you know, belongs, which one of us don't belong. And it had nothing to do with race, had nothing to do with, it It was all about, you know, the grit, the integrity, the, you know. He he told me later on when I commissioned, I saluted and asked him, you know, why. Who who did? The, the staff sergeant. Staff sergeant, all right. I asked him why he 
stood on my behalf. And he told me that he knew that I was tough shit when we were running. Remember that hill we used to run up in the back? Um, one of those trails we used to run up, it was like a steep ass hill. There was a name for it. Okay, so that was... Yes. <laughs> it was like a steep, steep ass hill. Anyways. I can't remember, man. It's been a while. Apparently, he was behind me, and he watched in his own eyes. I rolled my ankle completely. Like, it's bad. Fell down, hobbled back up, and I ran, and I kept running. I wasn't going to get dropped. I was at the back, but I ran, and I sucked it up, and I went in. And he said that he saw that, and he's like, you know, that. And then, among other things, you know, but he said, he told me specifically, he's like, that moment I knew you, you know, you, you have what it takes. That's a good, uh, dude, I like it, man. So we're at two hours. Shit. So this Jesus. is going to, we're going to call this the end of part one because we're going to make two parts out of this. We have to. Uh, and so for part one, well, real quick, we'll talk about what we're going to talk about in the second part of this, and then we'll do a little closing stuff, yeah. kind of conclusion. So in part two, we're going to cover a few more topics. Charlie's going to go to Wizzoville, learn how to be a Wizzo, practice his radio voice some more. Then he's going to go serve a ground fact tour, port air controller, go to combat. Then he's going to go to combat again as a pilot after going to flight school. No, no, I, I didn't go to combat. I did UDPs. UDPs. Okay, so you went to Japan and... Yeah. How many swim calls did you get in Japan? Uh, a couple. All your dive calls? That's important. <laughs> then uh, he's going to go on a mountain biking shit show and get paralyzed. And we're yeah. going to talk about his battle back from being paralyzed, which is no joke. And we're yeah. going to talk about lessons learned from that. So, folks, this will be the end of part one here briefly. But there's been, like you said, right people at the right time. Yeah, man. I Absolutely. mean, you've got some luck. You've got some significant luck. Oh, it's luck. going to repeat itself on the next segment. Yeah, looking forward to it. So, hey, man, you got any closing thoughts, save rounds, lessons learned from the first half before we call it a day? No, man, I'm... This is taking me back, you know, memory lane, and uh, none of which I thought were anything special. I'm certainly not special. So hundreds, if not thousands of people who've gone through worse than me. Um, glad I have had the opportunity, you know. Thank God. If it wasn't for this country, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you like this. A little bit of perspective, right? Yeah, man. Awesome. All right, folks, that's part one. This is Charlie and Susan. We're out of here. See ya.